1: Not only do you upgrade to FAIR, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor at large of Recode. You may know me as someone with a great apocalypse survival plan, break into Peter Tale's bunker and steal it. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is David Wallace-Wells, the deputy editor of New York Magazine. He's also the author of a new book, which is getting a lot of attention, called The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. It's all about climate change and how things could get much, much worse in the near future. It's not the happiest read, and I was reading parts of it on a plane, which does a lot of damage to the environment. Although we used to talk about global warming as something that would mainly affect the coast, Wallace-Wells says it will hit the poorer parts of the world the hardest.
3: That's not a coincidence. It's because those parts of the world are already hotter mm-hmm. and are closer to brink of real tipping points. So by 2050, if we don't change course, many of the biggest cities in the Middle East and South Asia will be literally unlivably hot. Um, so some, a place like Calcutta, which I think has about 12 million people living in it, in the summer you won't be able to go outside without risking heat stroke.
2: We'll also talk about why tech leaders in Silicon Valley are not doing enough to prevent the worst case scenario. David, welcome to Recode Decode.
3: Thanks. It's great to be here.
2: So we're going to talk a little, a lot about this book and also about uh, how it relates to tech because tech people really haven't been as involved in it. But let's first talk about your background. You, um, you're. I love New York Magazine, as most people know. When I talk about, it, I think it's one of the best magazines around. I think Mother Jones, I think California Sunday. There's a couple that are just killing it in terms of, you know, the good writers and the good topics and stuff like that. Talk to me a little bit about how you got to this topic because you've written about that in New York Magazine, but it's not. Your yeah, subject I mean, area.
3: I'm just. I'm somebody who, as a journalist, I've been interested in the near future. So I'm. I've always been looking out for news from science, news from technology, and thinking a little bit about how those things are going to change. You know, the way we live in the future. And then a couple of years ago, really in 2016, I just started seeing all of these really alarming new bits of research coming out about climate science. And I didn't, as a kind of competitive journalist, I didn't see those stories being told honestly mm-hmm. in the outlets that we think of as our competitors. What do you mean
2: honestly? What do you? Because there's been a lot of climate change story. I mean, I've read yeah. so many. I feel like I, yeah. I'm pretty up to speed on what's been going well, on. Well, just
3: I mean, so I think actually things have changed a little bit over the last couple of years. But um, two and the um, the portrait that the public has now, I think, is more accurate than was the case a couple of years ago. But a couple of years ago, I think there were basically like three major misconceptions. The first was about the speed of change. So... I was raised, at least, to think about climate change as something that was happening really slowly. Mm-hmm. In fact, scientists talked a lot about that being a big problem for public communication because nobody wanted to act on it.
2: Like, yeah, someday. It's like we saw the Decades day after from now, tomorrow maybe, or whatever with the Jake Gyllenhaal movie, yeah. which was a very good movie, by the way.
3: You're not the, the you're maybe the, like, the only person who said that to me. I <laughs> love that
2: movie, Jake but, Gyllenhaal. He's I, well, he's good. Underrated. Yeah. He's good. No, he's um, not underrated at all.
3: <laughs> but, you know, we, we thought, oh, it was going to be happening at the very end of the century at the earliest, and we just had... Their therefore had so much time to invent our way out of it, grow our way out of it. Mm-hmm. In fact, half of all the um, emissions that we've put into the atmosphere in the entire history of humanity have come in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. So we've brought the planet from total climate stability to the brink of catastrophe in 30 years, mm-hmm. which is the story of my lifetime and the story of the next 30 years. Just so since the 80s.
2: Essentially, since like the late it. 80s, yeah. yeah. So
3: that's since Al Gore published his first book on warming. Right. It's since the UN established the, their climate change panel, um, which means— We've done more damage knowingly than we ever managed in ignorance. It's since the premiere of Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to give it some yeah. real context, this is happening very, very quickly. And we're now in a position where we have, depending on who you talk to, maybe 30 years to really avert the worst um, possibilities. So,
2: possibilities of what's going to happen. So let's go back to to then because in, in the 80s it did start. That was when Al Gore did his movie. Yeah. Which was what year? What,
3: that was 2007. 2007. So he wrote
2: his first book. When but he, he was started first talking about it. Yeah. You know, oddly enough, I, it's strange, odd personal story. I one of my first meetings with Al Gore was over chlorofluorocarbons. Yeah. And the emissions into the atmosphere, and they were from refrigerators um, and air conditioners. I think uh, I don't even remember, but I wrote a story because he was pioneering legislation around the, the elimination of them because mm-hmm. they were so harmful to the uh, atmosphere. And he was at I remember listening to him, at the time, nobody. He was sort of a Cassandra kind of personality um, in the Senate at the time, and I wrote a story about it. And then also, of course, Angels in America, which talked about that as a, as a, as a metaphoric mm-hmm. issue around the AIDS crisis. They mm-hmm. were using the idea of the broken uh, atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, which was interesting. So that's when I first started, like, which was well before that in the 80s, sometime in the 80s. But you're right. People didn't really have... A lot of awareness, but there was some. There was certainly some. Yeah, and
3: we just haven't responded. I mean, we've now known about this issue really, I think, undeniably at the highest levels of government, at the highest levels of policymaking for at least 30 years. 30 years. And those 30 years are record emissions years. Every year is higher than the last globally. And um, so for all the faith we might have in— well, now we really can take the problem seriously. It's, you know, the recent recent history suggests that knowledge is not nearly enough to make people actually act sure, on this. Sure. And I mean, if you look, you know, the energy revolution we've had over the last 30 years, the price of renewables has fallen so dramatically. It's a huge, huge success story. Mm-hmm. But the share of global energy use from renewables has not grown at all in 40 years. So in terms of, you know, the, um, in terms of the ratio of global energy use were exactly where we were 40 years ago when hippies were using um, solar panels on their geodesic domes. I Mm -hmm. mean, we've made no progress at all. And in fact, since the whole pie of energy use has grown, we're in a worse situation than we were then because we're using more dirty energy too. Dirty energy.
2: Okay. Let's break it down for—so you so you got interested in this topic and have been just paying attention or just been silently worried like most yeah.
3: people? Well, I wrote a, a big piece a couple years ago that was um, looking at worst-case scenarios for mm-hmm. warming. That was in 2017. And that was because, you know, in addition to the speed mistake I think most of the storytelling was making, there was also this sort of— um, optimistic fallacy happening where scientists talked about this two-degree of warming threshold as the threshold of catastrophe, and that meant that most people understood it as a kind of worst-case scenario. But in Mm -hmm. fact, basically, it's a best-case scenario. And what we're on track for is four 4.3 degrees warming this century. And that whole range of outcomes between two and four degrees I felt was totally unexplored. Mm -hmm. And the range of outcomes north of four degrees, which is possible if unlikely, um, was literally untalked about. And I thought it would be just as a kind of storytelling opportunity, an incredible story to tell. Like, well, what if it actually got as bad as it could possibly get?
2: Which is four to five degrees.
3: Well, I mean, there are feedback loops that if they are triggered could conceivably bring us north of eight degrees. Uh-huh. But um, I think that was kind of vanishingly unlikely. But if we did get to eight degrees, probably about a third of the world or more would be literally too hot to walk around without dying. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that that's conceivable this century, even if it's vanishingly unlikely should terrify us all. But instead, we had this kind of prophylactic reflex where we just didn't want to look at it. And that was true of the scientists. It was true of the journalists. And I felt there was this huge, epic story to tell. I wrote that story, and it had a huge response. talk about
2: that story. I do remember that story. Talk about what you were outlining there for people.
3: I was walking um, through—I don't remember actually the exact number, but maybe six or eight particular areas where if climate change got really bad, things could get really ugly. So— You know, in addition, I didn't even write about sea level rise because I sort of thought everybody understood that, but agriculture. So, if we end up at the end of the century at the um, path that we're on now, we get to four degrees by the end of the century, our grain yields will be half as bountiful as they are today. We'll be trying to feed 50% more people. Conflict. For every half degree of warming, you get a 10 and 20% increase in conflict, which means, again, at four degrees of warming, we'll have twice as much war as we have today. Economic growth. The best economic research suggests that at the end of the century, if we don't change course, global GDP will be 20 to 30% smaller than it would be without climate change. So 30%, that's an impact twice as big as the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And it would be permanent. Um, their impacts on public health, on cognitive performance, on the development of children in utero and out of utero. Temperature increases violence, not just at the level of states, but at the level of individuals. So rates of murder go up, rape goes up, domestic assault goes up. It also affects, um, believe it or not, Incidents of mental illness, so there are higher rates of admission for schizophrenia at at mental hospitals when it's hotter out. And people in hospitals have um, more outbreaks when it's hotter out. There's some thinking, might have something to do with how the medication works at higher levels. You look inside the human body, we have millions, if not billions, of viruses and bacteria that live inside us. We don't know how those will um, behave in even a slightly altered environment. Um, But we do know that we are now living on a planet that is warmer than it has ever been in the entire history of humanity. So we are living in a literally unprecedented climate situation, and all of these things that we sort of take for granted as permanent features of our life, of modern life, of biological life, of human life, are going to be disturbed in some way going forward. The question is how profoundly and in what way is benefiting whom and m- imposing suffering on whom? And my book, my, my article first, but then my book, was really an effort to think through those questions, not just what... Science says about what warming is coming and what that means, but what those warming impacts will mean for the way that you and I live, relate to one another, how we organize our politics, our culture, Mm -hmm. how it affects our storytelling, our sense of history, all that stuff. And how
2: does it affect geographically? It, it, talk about that. Talk about the. Yeah, I
3: mean, I think so. Climate change is totally all encompassing. We mm-hmm. we were long told that it was an s- issue of sea level rise, and that meant that if you lived on the coast, if li- lived anywhere but so the coastlines, so if you lived in Manhattan, oh, right. So but I'm if you sorry. lived in Oklahoma, you'd be oh, no big deal. Um, the more we learn about it, the more we learn about all of these impacts, it's, it's it really is an all-encompassing threat. And that may sound like a naive revelation. When I walk down the street on concrete, I look up at steel buildings, I feel like I'm living outside of nature. But, of course, we all live within nature. Mm-hmm. And when nature changed, we're affected by it. Mm-hmm. So it's a universal phenomenon, but it also punishes in a discriminating way. So mostly it's the world's poor who will suffer most. That's not a coincidence. It's because those parts of the world are already hotter mm-hmm. and are closer to brink of real tipping points. Um, so by 2050, if we don't change course, many of the biggest cities in um, the Middle East and South Asia will be literally unlivably hot. Um, so some a place like Calcutta, which I think has about 12 million people living in it, in the summer, you won't be able to go outside without risking heat stroke. That's going to happen as soon as 2050. Um, already, uh, agricultural yields across the Middle East are suffering because of climate change. And there are a lot of people who think that the whole wave of um, Islamic... Uh, terrorism is a product of climate change hitting those parts of the world Mm -hmm. first. By 2050, you won't be able to go on pilgrimage to Mecca. It'll just be too hot. Um, And if you look at the economic data, it shows up in exactly that way, even though these countries are poorer, and so the same natural disaster impact shows up as a smaller number, say, in Bangladesh than it would in Miami Beach. But India is scheduled to receive, I think the number is 29% of all economic suffering from climate change in the coming century. Um, the U.S. is scheduled to have about 15%. But India is really the country that's going to be hit hardest and most. Um, and that
2: is because of where it is.
3: It's a combination of it. It's equatorial, which means it's, um, it's already hot and it's closer to these tipping points. It also has huge river systems, so there'll be huge river flooding issues. And you know, some features of their natural landscape make it slightly more vulnerable than some other um, par- equivalent places in the world. But really, all across the equatorial band of the world, things are going to get a lot harder. They're already getting difficult in mm-hmm. ways that you and I don't really appreciate living where we live. Northern Hemisphere. Um, places really on the equator are already really suffering, but that suffering is going to get much more dramatic. And that opens up the question of, say, 50 years from now, if India is really boiling and Bangladesh is flooded, what is the responsibility of, say, their former colonial overlord, England, which literally invented the Industrial Revolution and Mm -hmm. ran that empire on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Um, Similar question for the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. If it really is impossible to go on pilgrimage to Mecca, Saudi Arabia, they bear a huge responsibility for a lot of our issues because they produced all this oil, but they did that basically as a client state of the U.S. and at the direction of U.S. business interests. And what the relationship of U.S. wealth to Saudi suffering, that's a huge open question I think will sort of have to evolve a geopolitics to adjudicate in the coming decades. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the big subjects I sort of tentatively sketch out in the book is what this geopolitics will look like if we invented a global order after World War II based on human rights and peace and prosperity. Even if we didn't honor those values always, that was the sort of, those were the stated values. Mm What will it look like in the coming decades if we have a world order that's really oriented around climate change and carbon? Will we start to see sanctions against bad behaving countries? Will we possibly even see military action against something like... The program that the new Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, he's trying to deforest the whole Amazon, which will be crippling to <laughs> for climate change. If that happened 20 or 30 years down the road— is it possible that a Chinese army would stop him? I think mm-hmm. it is possible, mm-hmm. um, as sort of hard to imagine as it is right now. Right. But I think that
2: well, you'd have to see the connections, right? Yeah, you, I mean, people do see the connections, but they don't see the connections. Well, I think that's
3: do. that's changing a little bit. I mean, um, for a long time, the fact that carbon was invisible was a real problem for climate mm-hmm. change. So, when we had pollution in the U.S. in the '70s, in particular, it really mobilized um, public opinion because you could you could see, see the it. air, you could feel it in your lungs, and people responded. Um, carbon hasn't had that advertising quality. But I think that the wildfires in California have been really important in that Mm -hmm. way. I think they feel really imminent and immediate to people even living in other parts of the world. I Mm -hmm. hear when I talk to people in Europe, they talk about the California wildfires so vivid Mm -hmm. um, and the extreme weather. We're seeing like hurricane after hurricane through the Caribbean.
2: Just now the uh, cyclone in yeah in uh, where was it in the congo where no, mozambique, mozambique right, yeah. exactly mozambique
3: no it's i mean it's it's that we just had the first february typhoon in pacific history mm-hmm. and you know, we we kind of normalize some of these events. If we see them sure. only so often, we we forget that they used to happen only every decade when we're seeing them only every three years. But the closer they get together, the harder it is to ignore that it's a new mm-hmm. situation. So in the book, I talk a little bit about, you know, you hear this term on the news, 500-year storm. Right. That means a storm that's supposed to hit once every 500 years. Yep. Mm-hmm. So 500 years, 500 years ago, white people had just like come to the Caribbean. They hadn't even set foot on mainland America. So we're talking about one storm that was supposed to hit during the entire colonial period through the American Revolution, the empire of slavery, the Civil War, World War One, World War Two. Everything that we've known since World War II, our imperial moment, our post-Cold War, like, et cetera, all the way to the present day, we're supposed to see one storm of that kind in all of that time. Hurricane Harvey was the third 500-year storm to hit Houston in three years. Mm -hmm. We are living in a totally, totally unprecedented climate situation. And the crazy thing is, it's only going to get more unprecedented. Right. We're at 1.1 degrees now. We
2: like to use that word unprecedented all the time now. Yeah. They use it a lot around Trump. Unprecedented. I'm like, no, it's precedented. He said it. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's Interesting that we, we I think humanity tends to take things in and then just deal, just like totally. accept them.
3: Well, I think on some level, that's the scariest. Good and bad. Good and bad. Yeah. And For, for climate, it's really, um, it almost feels tragic, but I do think the likeliest outcome is that we produce much, much, much more suffering and yet normalize it at exactly the same rate that we're yeah, creating it. Absolutely. So that 50, 80 years from now, the world is really, really in pain. But the wealthy people, in the, in the, especially in the West and the U.S. and the EU, are just sort of looking away from all that suffering.
2: Which is what they're good at. All right, we're here with David Wallace-Wells. He's the author of a book that you really should read. It's getting a lot of attention The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. We're going to take a quick break now, but after this, we'll talk about why Silicon Valley isn't doing enough about climate change and what are the solutions that
0: nobody is talking about. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial.
1: If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com.
2: We're here with David Wallace-Wells. His book is called The Uninhabitable Earth. One of the things we were talking about is the West ignoring it because of the comfort of the wealthy. One of the things we talked about before this started was that how little tech has interest in it. It really is true. I just, I hadn't, I had thought of it. They're interested in changing food. They're interested in automobiles, self-driving automobiles. They're interested in AI, automation. But climate change is it is not something that, any of them has pioneered i'm trying to think well gates has made some gates investments yeah. sort of in a philanthropic but it's more way medical it's not heavily it's not his his focus it's he's done
3: he's done kind of significant investments in carbon capture which are machines that take carbon out of the atmosphere sure. um, and is behind and the and some
2: water stuff i, I yeah. think he was water is, is I, have to, I have seen them dip into every now and then clean yeah. water
3: well I think it's it's basically like these are essentially they have these people have the mindset of engineers mm-hmm. and they are excited about problems that seem to them engineering problems mm-hmm. and climate change actually isn't really an engineering problem as much as it is a political problem mm-hmm. and that's an area of human life that is much more complicated for these sure. tech billionaires to approach but you know my feeling about it is I'm I'm confused by this because I see a new class of plutocrat who is, has more capital and more social capital than basically anybody has ever had in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. They see themselves as world historical figures. They want to see themselves as gods. They're chasing eternal life and whatever, like longevity. And yet, and they're, and they're living on a world that is about to face some incredibly crippling, possibly existential threats from yep. climate change. You'd think that like the ego would drive you. No, to you know want to they have other the plans. Problem. They have
2: two plans. One is to get off the planet yeah. and go to Mars, which is I think Elon, Jeff Bezos, all of them are interested in getting off the planet. Not all of them, but a lot of them, yeah. a lot of the more wealthy ones. Um, and then the second thing is to create bunkers. That's something I joked about the Peter Thiel thing, but they I can't tell you how many yeah. conversations I've had with very wealthy people about their bunker plan. And I, except for intermittent fasting, they don't talk about anything else. And it's really, you know, one was like, I've got a motorcycle that will get me to my bunker in Big Sur. And this is, and I was literally like, what? Like you have an entire. They have entire elaborate escape plans. plans, escape plans. It's interesting. They because always involve a motorcycle, <laughs> which I'm going to be like, I'm taking. They want a motorcycle. To, They want to see I themselves joke, in that I'm movie. I'm going to take their motorcycle. <laughs> That's really. what I'm
3: doing. I mean, it's interesting to me because you know you hear a lot about sort in the in the sort of inequality moment that we're in, you hear a lot of. Chatter from the left that's like these people are so out of touch. They yeah. don't understand just how broken the world is. Yeah. But the fact that they all have bunkers and escape plans suggests that they may know even more keenly than like activists on the left just <laughs> how like just how much discontent there oh, is. Oh, I think out there. they're not
2: aware of any of the pain, and yeah. at the same time they have a bunker plan because yeah. they because they first of all it's weirdly romantic to them, the concept. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just, they talk about it like, this is cool, isn't it? Yeah.
3: Kind of thing. Well, the space exploration thing is even,
2: it just. That it, to me, that's the biggest one of yeah. all
3: of them. And then, you know, Mars, to make Mars livable.
2: <laughs> speaking of hot, <laughs> speaking of hot and cold. No matter how awful Earth gets, it will yeah. be
3: easier to build. A, if you're going to build an eco, like a bio, mm-hmm. a, a biodome on Mars that's going to make it livable, you could do that on Earth. For much smaller costs, yeah. much more easily, and include many more people.
2: To say nothing of the ocean. Yeah, the things they could
3: do. So I, you know, it's it seems like um, it seems like it really is a fantasy of escape, mm-hmm. rather than um, a kind of humanitarian yeah. gesture towards livabl- livability. And I think it probably has something to do with you know they think there are all these like rare earth minerals up there mm-hmm. they can mine and yes um, that so was there are, another thing there yeah are like business opportunities yeah. there yeah they want to get but on there are business a, opportunities on a climate change too
2: there's one group that wants to get on a meteor yeah. and grab. I yeah. don't know, cobalt or whatever the
3: hell. Yeah, I think there is a lot of shit up there. Yeah, there But, is. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's like if—there if, um, if there are business opportunities in climate change, too. So I mentioned earlier that Bill Gates has invested in this carbon capture—a series of carbon capture companies. There's one in particular called Carbon Engineering. So this basic idea is that these are machines that will suck carbon out of the atmosphere and in some way or other store it either in liquid form or in something like coal, actually, to bury back in the earth. And this one guy running this company that Bill Gates is back, Carbon Engineering, has -hmm. found a way to do this at a cost of $100 a ton of carbon. That means that you could totally neutralize all of the carbon emissions produced by the entire global economy. We would not have to change anything about the way we're doing, and we would be putting no additional carbon into the atmosphere for a total cost of about $3 trillion a year. It's a lot of money, but there are estimates that we're subsidizing the fossil fuel business globally $5 trillion yeah. a year. So if we just redirected those subsidies towards those technologies, not only could we theoretically solve the problem, there are some complications, but theoretically we could solve that problem immediately. It would also create enormous immediate Fortunes Like whoever Mm -hmm. was running these companies, whoever owned these technologies, would become immediately like the world's richest men. So there are incredible business opportunities there too, actually much bigger than like the rare earth mining opportunities on whatever asteroid they're aiming for. I think it has more to do with the fact that for a long time climate change has just been like – earnest, mm-hmm. corny, right. kind of um, not something that anybody thought was Let's sexy. let put some
2: solar panels. Now, you know, someone who does talk about this a lot is the Mr. Mars himself, Elon Musk. He yeah. does. I think one of the Interesting parts of an interview. Whatever you think of Elon Musk, he really is obsessed with the idea of the destruction of the world, and I think Mars has to do with it. Is that he feels that Tesla is almost a religious thing to save the Earth. That we are, we are. At a, he talks about it, and people don't hear that part of it, but I definitely did, which was about the fact that our, our the, with climate change, if he doesn't make this, we're going to keep going down this road to of carbon emissions with cars. And it, he does start to talk about it, and people move on from it. But that is a very central. And aspect. he's almost
3: single-handedly made, mm-hmm. you know, made a huge difference in the. At least the sort of automobile sector, when it comes to yeah, climate, they I think, wouldn't have done it without it. And Solar City, which is often less talked about because it's a little less present in the mm-hmm. public imagination, is really just as important because a lot of the problem with the renewable energy generally is that you can't store it as well. And so, battery technology is really, really important. Which is his he's in, Yeah, he's a big interest. No, he's 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 a great hero. I think he and Gates are like the two people who are really on it. Sam Altman's like called for some proposals at Y Combinator, but they're kind of of the weirder, um, like kookier. Not sure we can really count on this. Um, right kind of approach and but beyond that but I really yeah. I really don't see it. And some it. of the
2: stuff that uh, Elon talks about d- people do think he's crazy. I, that was the one part I thought, "Oh wow, he's really actually. I see I see the reason. He really does believe the earth is doomed."
3: Yeah. Well, a lot of one another reason that everybody's so excited to go out into outer space is cuz they're scared of asteroids. They mm-hmm. think that an asteroid could hit the planet oh. which it's a, it's a true that was a Tia
2: Leone movie. <laughs> you see, I see all the apocalyptic movies. Yeah, you really movies. have, like, a great Netflix I, queue. <laughs> I see them all uh, the day after tomorrow. The, I see them all. Yeah.
3: But, you know, we've been through five mass extinctions before the one that we're living in now. Mm-hmm. All but one of them were caused by global warming that was created by greenhouse gases. Only mm-hmm. one of them was caused by an asteroid. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the one that killed all the dinosaurs. Yeah, so it's, like, it the most dramatic. It but it's one. actually, in terms of da- numbers, it's not the most dramatic. There was 250 million years ago, there was a mass extinction event. Um, caused by greenhouse gases Mm -hmm. that killed as much as 97% of all life on Earth, 97%. And basically, each of these mass extinctions is like, you totally wipe the slate clean. It's almost like an entirely new planet begins Mm -hmm. again. And we may get hit by an asteroid, but it's not happening in the next 100 years. We know that because
2: Well, although if you're Nathan Mielfeld, we had him at Code a couple years ago talking about how wrong the estimates are of that. He's obsessed with that concept. Yeah,
3: everybody's really—I don't know. It's really a common just, nightmare. And I just think we're literally living through a nightmare now. Why can't we all focus on that? Why do we have to invent one or at least um, exaggerate a the Bruce threat Willis
2: of one? Because Willis movie about it. Yeah. yeah. You remember that one?
3: Yeah, well, it's a big question for me, an interesting question, is why we've had so little good movie-making, good storytelling about climate change, which is, you know, really, to me, the epic, even theological story of our time. I mean, I mentioned before we have this— This timeline, Mm -hmm. we brought the planet from stability to the brink of crisis in 30 years. Now we have 30 years to save it. Like, you and I Mm -hmm. will be present and will be a part of whatever response we make.
2: David, I'm hoping to be dead then, but go Uh, ahead. 30
3: years? You don't want to live (laughs) another 30 years? Um, It's close. Yeah. (laughs) It's close. But, you know, that's a drama at the scale that cultures used to treat as theology. I mean, Mm -hmm. and we instead are, like, reluctant to even dramatize it at all. Right. And when we do— Why is
2: that? So talk to me about that, because the storytelling is—it is is, it is, it is a tech story. It is really a tech story. I mean, yeah. I, I do want to talk a little bit about tech solutions and the idea of what are that. so there's this carbon one that Gates is doing. What yeah. else?
3: Well, I mean, the you know, the energy um, the energy generation, just the wind and solar costs, are, the progress has been incredible. The yeah. f- prices have fallen so much more dramatically than— um,
2: Do you have solar in your house? I do. I don't. I do. Yeah, for twenty years I've had it. Congrats. Yeah, I was um, married to someone who was obs- obsessed with solar.
3: Yeah, I mean it's you know wind is is huge and and it's not also just wind. Not just in the U.S. It's now most parts of the world cheaper than dirty energy. That's that's a huge part of it. But you know energy is only one slice of the of the problem. There's sure. also I think it's about thirty percent of global um, you know the global problem. There's there's transportation, air travel. Uh-huh. Um, which we are talking about before. Every round trip ticket from New York to LA um, is the equivalent of eight months of driving. Every round trip ticket from New York to London costs nine square meters of Arctic ice.
2: Well, let's talk about that because it's really one of the things that's interesting. Because you're talking about the tech people many years ago, um, it's really interesting. Because Google, for example, has been very interested. They were going to do this giant wind farm in Hawaii. There was all these. They they've been fu- a lot of the energy around all their servers. They mm-hmm. were definitely uh, thermal. I remember they were talking about thermal. They were talking. They were always interested in alternate energy sources that were not uh, damaging to the earth. That is for sure. But they never did them, which was really interesting.
3: Well, also it was it's often about sourcing your own energy yes, rather exactly. than sort of exporting it? Of as course. A, yeah. But I
2: think some of their wind stuff was really interesting. They mm-hmm. had a giant kite. I remember they that. They had a lot of this stuff because my ex was involved in it. I remember they talked about it almost yeah. incessantly, which was interesting. And at the very same time, this group of people are accepting tons of money from Saudi Arabia, tons of money from all the oil-producing states. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, Do you not see the disconnect? Like, you know, they didn't refuse that money. Or Russia, which another, uh, you know, oil. Bad actor. But not just a bad actor, but an oil-backed
3: actors. And, and so which has they're one of the few countries in the world that's likely to benefit from warming, so yeah. they're sort of doubly incentivized to make it worse. Why is
2: that? Explain
3: that. Well, cuz the the northern the more right. northern you are, like you know, your crops will grow better, right. and there are these economic productivity statistics that it sounds sort of like geographic determinism, but there's a kind of an optimal temperature for economic productivity, mm-hmm. at about 13 degrees Celsius, which is the historical median of the US. The US has now warmed a little bit beyond them, so The economists say that we're probably losing about a half a degree, a half a percent of GDP every year because we're too hot. But of course, parts of The U.S. are exactly at 13 degrees Celsius, that optimal temperature, including Silicon Valley. Um, So that's now at the optimal productivity Uh temperature. And Russia will will move in that direction. So their cognitive performance will improve and their agriculture will improve. So their economy will be doing better. But on top of that, they're a petrostate. So if they can continue to produce oil and sell it, they'll be better off.
2: Right, right, exactly. But what's interesting is about why there's no solutions. You, You use this one carbon one from Gates. Are there others that are massive like that?
3: Well, that is not massive. It's still at the kind it's of swell. laboratory scale, but it could be scaled globally. Right. I think basically it's a kind of we need a million solutions, not one silver bullet solution. Mm-hmm. But for instance, if we could develop uh, zero carbon or carbon neutral jet fuel, that would be really important because right. nobody expects that we're going to give up airplane flying. In fact, everybody expects that there's going to be more air travel in the oh, decades no, that's ahead.
2: What they, want it, they do these carbon— they buy up these carbon things, which drives me nuts. Oh,
3: uh, the carbon offsets? Yeah. 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 I mean, there's also, you know, there, people, there are a lot of people who think that um, we can do it through natural sources, so by replanting forests and doing different agricultural practices. And it's true that, you know, plants suck up carbon and they produce oxygen. That's what they do. So if we had more of them, we'd be better off. But estimates for what we'd have to do to avert this catastrophic level of warming 2 degrees strictly through these natural sources, it would require a third of all the planet's arable land mm-hmm. to be used Only for this purpose. So I think it's like we have to take solutions here and there and everywhere. But we're moving so slowly that we probably won't be able to get hit any of the benchmarks that we would want to hit to avoid some really catastrophic outcomes. And that means that a lot of people um, are putting faith in what's called solar geoengineering, which is putting Mm -hmm. aerosol pollution into the atmosphere. Explain that. So sunlight comes to Earth and is absorbed by Earth. Mm -hmm. If we put stuff into the atmosphere that could reflect some of that sunlight, less of it would be absorbed by the Earth, and therefore the Earth would be a a little bit— Yeah. So, it kind of masks the natural level of warming that we'd be at, and if we put enough—it's usually sulfur that people talk about—put enough in the atmosphere, we could, say, lower the temperature of the planet by one or two or even three degrees Celsius. And there are a lot of people who are worried about that, in part because we don't really know how it would affect agriculture. We don't know how it would affect um, public health. There's already actually a lot of aerosol pollution from just the burning of fossil fuels. Nine million people are dying annually from that air pollution. Mm-hmm. If we don't avoid two degrees of I warming just two. from air pollution, 153 million people would die from it, which is 25 Holocaust's worth of people. Um, so we're already we're already inflicting huge amounts of suffering through air pollution. This would be creating more of it. And there's the other problem, which is that um, if we're just masking... Uh, the amount of global warming that we not would have naturally, significant changes. and then like, what if a terrorist attacked the plant that was, um, you know, suspending the sulfur? Or what if there was a world war that made the continuation of that um, project difficult? Then we'd immediately push the planet to a much higher level of warming, and would be, you know, if it if it would be catastrophic for us to get to three degrees over the span of fifty years, it would be insanely catastrophic for us to do that over the span of five months or something, which mm-hmm. could could be what happened, and yet. Even this guy, for instance, this guy who stands to benefit from that um, carbon capture technology, the guy who's running that company that Bill Gates founded, he told me that he doesn't want to see carbon capture put forward as a solution. He wants, except in very small-scale ways for sectors that are having trouble decarbonizing, he wants to see geoengineering used Mm -hmm. because it's much cheaper and you could do it for a time, basically to buy yourself some time so that you could decarbonize at a much more natural pace. Mm -hmm. Carbon capture would be... um, would require global infrastructure, they say, two to three times the size of the current oil and gas industry, and geoengineering would be much, much, much simpler to manage and more economical. Um, So even those people—this is a person who literally would become like a trillionaire if if his company were rolled out across the world, is saying, actually— I just want it. I want this company to be used in a small scale way, and I think this other solution would be would be better. But that means that our our skies would turn red, and like I said, there are all of these um, unpredictable effects which scientists are only now beginning to study and really understand. Unfortunately, we're now in a situation where we need it. So the UN, you know, the UN. This two degrees of warming is like the the threshold of catastrophe they call it. The UN has four hundred scenarios in which. We avoid two degrees of warming. 344 of them use negative emissions of one kind or another. So that's some form of sucking um, stuff out of the atmosphere. They ran another series of 116, 108 of them used negative emissions. So we are really dependent on these sort of spectacular, unheard of, and untested technologies to avoid Anything but truly catastrophic levels of warming. This is something I think the average person on the street doesn't understand. Right. We can't avoid We can't suck the dirt up. We can't clean it up. We can't it. we just can't do it without these right. technologies which you have never heard nobody's ever heard of. Right. Um, we are depending on them already for the planet being livable fifty or seventy years from now.
2: We're talking to David Wallace-Wells about a very important topic. He's the author of The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. When we get back, we'll talk about the Green New Deal and what politicians and tech leaders would have to do in the immediate future to minimize the harm of climate change.
1: Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.
2: We're here with David Wallace Wells, he's the author of The Uninhabitable Earth. You know, these scenarios are very quick, coming quick. That's one thing that people don't realize. The second is that that people don't really understand that there's not a particular solution to it or that we're not making the kind of things. And I want to end talking about that, but what are the key things we have to do in the next five years, ten years? But right now, the political will to do anything is nearly zero except for someone like Alexandria Ocasio, who's, who gets pilloried for saying, you know, we really have to slow it down rather dramatically um, who gets made fun of, uh, who, you know, it's really interesting, the reaction to what she's saying, which I don't think is particularly that dramatic. It's t- it's sort of a- identifying a problem. But you know yeah, I mean, the, the, the White Green- House saying, yeah. it's not warm, it's cold, yeah. like stuff like that. I know. <laughs> Such I heroes think. we have in
3: the White House. I know. Yeah, I mean, the you know, the Green New Deal, um, it is basically, it's not really a piece of legislation. It's no. like a kind of policy. It's a conceptual yeah, idea. Mm-hmm. And it really starts by quoting, literally quoting the UN's findings and mm-hmm. saying, Here's what the UN says we need to do. And then it sort of moves on to try to develop a politics and a policy that could meet those targets. But that's radical in its own right, just saying we're going to build a politics out of the science rather than build a politics out of what we think is feasible. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a huge sea change. And I think personally I see a lot of hope um, in the politics. So the Yale climate polling, which is the kind of gold standard um, on this issue, says 73% of Americans believe climate change is real and happening now. 70% of them are concerned about it. Um, Those numbers are up 15% since 2015. They're up 8% since last March. Um, That's rapid change by any political science measure. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's really slow given how little time we have to take action. But um, by any, you know, the the movement is just really, really fast. I just saw a poll today that said that climate change is now the number one, tied for the number one priority among Democrats who are going to be going to caucuses in Iowa. And again, this is like the Democratic Party five years ago thought cap and trade was too radical to even try. And now we're in a situation where every single major presidential candidate has signed on to the Green New Deal, which calls for a World War II scale mobilization, which is what the UN says is necessary globally to avert catastrophic warming, that we need to globally mobilize at the level we did during World War II against climate right now. In fact, the Secretary General says we need to start this year, 2019. Um, we're, we're very far from that, which means like I don't think we are going to avert those levels of warming. But it's nice to see, it's hardening to see more and more political energy taking the threat seriously. Now, how quickly that affects the actual policymakers, how quickly like that policy becomes law, and how quickly that law creates real changes in our infrastructure and in our economy. It's an open question. And it's, I think more importantly, a global question. So Americans often think, about climate change as an American issue. Mm-hmm. And the US is historically responsible for the lion's share of global emissions. Well, Americans
2: think about everything as an American totally. issue.
3: And, but there's a real there's a real particular narcissism here. The US is now responsible for 15 percent of all global emissions. Mm-hmm. Just 15 percent.
2: What are we like 1% of the population? Some right it's right, some number. It's like smaller than 15. Right.
3: But China's responsible for 29 percent of global mm-hmm. emissions, I think. And that's not even counting all of the infrastructure they're building in the Belt and Road across mm-hmm. Asia and Africa. If concrete were a country, it would be the the world's third biggest emitter, Mm -hmm. and China is now pouring as much concrete every three years as the U.S. poured in the entire 20th century. Incredible!
2: So, are they aware of? I mean, having been in China, the the pollution is just uninhabitable. Well, it's gotten
3: better since um, 2013 was the worst year for them. Actually, now the pollution's worst in India, Mm -hmm. but um, in China they've done a lot. And Xi Jinping, actually, especially since Donald Trump has been elected, I think has sort of seen an opportunity. Because Trump has sort of evacuated the role of American leadership on this issue. Evacuated. And,
2: He's crapped all over. It.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and she is like, well, I can play global climate leader now. Mm-hmm. They're still behaving badly in a lot of ways. They haven't closed their coal plants. In mm-hmm. fact, they're kind of still opening more coal plants. But they've made massive investments in green and renewable energies over the last mm-hmm. few years, done a ton to clean up their air pollution. And I think that will probably continue. And in a weird way, it's what we have to hope for because— American emissions are—they were up last year, but they're on a long-term downward trend. Mm -hmm. It's the same as true of the EU and the UK. Mm -hmm. Um, But the climate future of the planet will be written by China to a lesser extent, India, and sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. And so the real problem is not, you know, the Republican Party. Republican Party—no other country in the world has a party like the Republican Party, and yet no other country in the world is behaving better than the U.S. on emissions, which gives you a sense of that there may be some— Red herring, kind of convenient thinking among American liberals about that. But
2: meaning, meaning, meaning. Oh, that the, the,
3: the, the Republican the, Party is like their villainous. They've they've really dragged their feet on this. Right. But like, we're not in this situation because of the Republican Party.
2: No, I see what you mean. They just, they just, it's the, it's the, it's the discussion about it. The way they discuss it's in such a cavalier sense. But
3: you know, if it's the social democratic That's countries of Scandinavia, old. super green countries. Mm-hmm. They say that they're much more aggressive on climate, but their emissions are not falling faster than ours. Mm-hmm. So it makes you think just how much is is the rhetorical.
2: Well, some of it has to do with the fact that like California and other states, which were the biggest emissions, are the ones doing a lot of the movement, correct? Is that?
3: Yeah, although in California, so they, they have they've made incredible progress on all these mm-hmm. green energy initiatives. They've cut their emissions dramatically. And yet the gains they make every year are literally entirely mm-hmm. wiped out by every year's forest fires, right? So far, fire, um, trees are like carbon. They're sto- mm-hmm. are like coal. They're stored carbon, and when they burn, they release carbon. Oh,
2: anyone who lived in San Francisco understands that. that. Yeah, I mean, it was just it was fast. It was, it was. I think a lot of people in San Francisco woke up to that issue because of the way the skies looked. I know it sounded crazy, but it was uninhabitable. It felt uninhabitable. Yeah, and breathing. I mean, the breathing was. Te- I mean, it was and, terrible, and, and when the you- skies were all. Red. It was really creepy, and, and I think a lot of people were emotionally and, and affected by it in a way that was good, that yeah. caused certain worry about the future. I
3: think things are moving in that direction. I was just out in California doing wildfire reporting, and I was at Cal Fire, which is like the big organization that runs mm-hmm. the you know, the monitoring and, and fighting of, of fires out there. And um, I was talking to a guy who was showing me dash cam footage of his drive through Paradise during the campfire. The screen was entirely black. There was no light anywhere except occasionally you'd see some sirens from emergency vehicles. And I was like, wait, so when was this? And he said, oh, this is Mm mid-morning. And there was literally no sunlight penetrating below the smoke. It was entirely blacked out. And these fires are... You know, they used to burn at 1,700 degrees, they told me. Now they burn at 2,100 degrees. That's hot enough to turn the silica in the soil into glass. Mm -hmm. They used to—wind is the main driver of them. They used—wind events used to last four days. Now they last 14 days. And no fire powered by Santa Ana winds has ever been stopped by firefighters. I was talking to Eric Garcetti, the the mayor Mm -hmm. of Los Angeles, and he said— Basically, we can't stop these fires. You know, we have a better chance of solving climate change than we do of solve, of stopping these fires. Mm-hmm. There are 88, I think, municipalities in Los Angeles. 37 of those are, according to CAL FIRE, in severe, I don't remember what the exact terminology is, but they're like high hazard, severe What's level What's interesting warming. is because it's
2: just been raining a lot and so the drought um, situation has been, is better than yeah. it was or it's, it, now we're out of drought but position. But they
3: say, you know, there's sort of a, that can have negative effects too, because it produces yeah. more growth, which then can get drought. One hundred percent. it was
2: it was interesting though, and I was like, oh, we're having another drought. Yeah. Be, they'll be don't <laughs> good good that this is. Well, year, the folks
3: at Cal Fire were saying also that the kind of drought that they had from I think it was twenty twelve to twenty fifteen, mm-hmm. it'll take many years of good rain to oh, really 100%. recover from I, that. Just just
2: the other day, they just announced that they're back to normal levels. Yes, yeah. what they thought was, but, it, but, but nonetheless, I think people in California are very aware of the problem, yeah. more than most states. It's discussed. It's
3: well, I think that that'll be the story of the next couple of decades is mm-hmm. more people around the world becoming aware in exactly those terms because they right. see the impacts close by. I think or in so, the
2: Midwest, these floods. Or, totally. Or they and, make the connection. You know,
3: Tornado Alley um, has moved, f- the, which is the region of the country that gets hit by tornadoes, has moved 500 miles in 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it used to be all the way in Texas and Oklahoma. Now it's in the Gulf Coast, which is an entirely different environment that was not developed and was not built up in expectation of tornadoes. So now we're going to see much more destructive of tornadoes because they're hitting communities that were not we're built not to protect, yeah. It.
2: Right, exactly. So, Dave, let's finish up talking about what has to be done in the next five years, ten years, and it's politically in both and technologically, mm-hmm. what has to happen. If you had to pick, you know, w- what are the key parts? Besides, I mean, a lot of the attention got to the, to the, the global accords and things yeah. like that. What, besides agreeing on things like that? Yeah, what,
3: well, just to say one quick thing about the Paris sure. Accords, um, no major industrial countries on track to meet the commitments that they made mm-hmm. under the Paris Accords, and even if they did meet them, they, the world would still be heading for over three degrees of warming, which would mean the permanent loss of all ice sheets over time. That would bring hundreds of feet of sea level rise. It would mean hundreds of millions of climate refugees. It would mean terrible impacts on our agriculture. I mean the level that we're going to secure if we honor the Paris Accords is way higher than you and I would conscience, and yet Mm -hmm. we're not even honoring them. No country in the world is honoring them. So I think in a certain way, it's a little early to tell, but we have to sort of judge that model of um, approaching the solution as a kind of failure. And as to how we do it going forward, I think it's likelier that we end up with something like a, um, a bilateral arrangement orchestrated by a different American president and Xi Jinping really taking the lead rather than trying to um, pass it through a body as complicated as the UN. Mm -hmm. Um, But practically speaking, I think the immediate um, steps to take are ending fossil fuel subsidies. Um, There's no reason for us to be spending that money propping up these um, dirty energy sources. We could be spending it on R&D or building infrastructure that would allow us to um, endure. Is it
2: politically possible?
3: I think that there's not much sympathy globally or in the US for fossil fuel business. and in parts of the world, there are lawsuits already targeting companies you and targeting it's a tax governments. On all of us, yeah. yeah, in in the Netherlands, the people of the Netherlands took the government to court because they were failing to honor the Paris Accords and won. So now the Dutch government is going to be obligated to honor those accords. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., there's this incredible lawsuit being brought by these teenagers um, that uses this novel interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. They say basically. Um, our parents' generation was spared climate impacts that we're going to endure. Therefore, you are not protecting us equally. And that's at the district court level in Oregon. I think it's likely to win because it's Oregon. It's a liberal court, which means it'll be at the Supreme Court. I think it's unlikely to win at this Supreme Court. But if it did, it would actually immediately require the U.S. to take a much, much more aggressive um, position. And on that question, like what it would mean to really make a maximalist, um, you know, push on climate— I don't think there's any one silver bullet or one approach. I do Mm -hmm. think that ending fossil fuel subsidies is the easiest thing, but everything you do in the modern world has a carbon footprint from what you eat to how you, you know, what city you live in, how you drive, flying, all this stuff. And each of them has a thousand different things you can do to cut carbon. So I think what we need to do is evolve a perspective on everything that we do that is oriented around carbon and its impact so that we see that. Impact falling when we take changes, like in the sense that when you walk down the supermarket aisle, in addition to seeing things advertised as organic, you'll see things advertised as carbon-free. I think that'll happen quite soon. Uh-huh. I think there should be a lot more pressure on car makers to go all electric. I think it's possible in the relatively short order we'll see a ban on new internal combustion engines. Mm-hmm. There are already cities in Europe that don't have any cars. I think we'll see more of that. I think
2: I, that to me, if I, I remember I talked about running for mayor, I would declare San Francisco car-free. Just like to yeah. start the discussion just to piss everybody off yeah. so that that's the discussion.
3: Well, and just think about how much better the air would be.
2: Well, just to talk about it. Like yeah. why not think about it like that way? So you're, one of the things I do like about the stuff that Ocasio did or, say, Elizabeth Warren, whatever on tech, is that you start that. That's where you start the discussion. Not You're not sitting on your back feet. You're you're the one being the aggressive agenda setter, which yeah. I think is the fact of the matter is whether people go against it, you're, that's what you're talking about rather than not talking about it, yeah. which I think is an interesting it's really interesting to see how that's evolved.
3: But food is a huge part of it, mm-hmm. too. I mean, um, especially in, in the developing world, there's going to be much more appetite for, um, for beef and dairy than there is now. And those have huge carbon impacts. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's some thought that maybe China could adopt some policies that will encourage its citizens to not— develop an appetite for beef. Right. I think that's sort of unlikely, but there are these small scale studies that show that if you feed cows methane, uh, if you feed cows seaweed, their methane emissions go down by as much as 95 or 99%. We have a lot of seaweed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it was just there was that story, there was just a story about seaweed all over Mexico. Yeah, no, I mean, the oceans
3: are being transformed by this, too. It's it's so—I mean, it's really everywhere you look. There's too much
2: seaweed. There's too much seaweed, which is really interesting. Um, So we take the seaweed and we bring it to the cows. cows.
3: (laughs) And then their entire carbon footprint is basically eliminated. Mm -hmm. And there are solutions like—there are kind of technocratic solutions like that everywhere in the puzzle. But there's so many different puzzle pieces that it's hard to say it's any one thing. It really has to be a comprehensive kind of kitchen sink, all hands on deck approach. And when you
2: think about it, is how—given how the Silicon Valley— Approach. I'm sorry to bring it back to that. Is cars? That's where it centers on. Is the idea of eliminating cars or eliminating fossil fuel gen- uh, fueled cars? How important is that to getting? It just. An, uh, it's an L- as they fly around in their private planes, but that's another. Yeah, issue. I mean,
3: as I said, any round trip flight in the U.S. <laughs> is the equivalent of eight months of driving. So if you're really flying a lot, yeah. no matter what car you're driving, you're fucking the environment. But mm-hmm. cars are a huge problem. It's um, and it's a you know meaningfully you know it's like. I think globally something like 25% of the carbon problem is from cars, and we're going to see as China gets richer, as India gets richer, as sub-Saharan Africa gets richer, a much bigger demand for cars than we have today. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we need. I think we need to um, figure out ways to eliminate that carbon footprint. And I think the Tesla is has been hugely important and influential in, in making that happen. I think the, uh, the existing car companies left to their own devices would have been dragging Nothing. their feet for more Nothing. decades. Yeah. Maybe by 2080, we'd have an electric car, but um, mm-hmm. they're now being, because of Tesla, they're like all, you know, pressured to do it in the next decade or so. Right. And that's great. But it's so much bigger than that. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's it's every time you flick on the light. It's uh, you're imposing a carbon footprint. Right, on I'm going to turn off the light right now. But yeah. just one one last fact. <laughs> sure, um sure. every the average American emits enough carbon every year to melt 10,000 tons of arctic ice. Each one of us every year. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of ice up there, down there. Like, there's a lot of ice left over. But that um, just shows you, like, how much, even if you're living in a responsible way, yeah. you are still doing incredible damage. And that's because our policy has not yet evolved to provide us, you know, a choice architecture in which we can make a variety of decisions all of which are responsible. We're now living in a world where most of the choices we make about what we eat and how we travel, etc., most of the choices we can make are irresponsible. We need to live in a world yes, there that
2: is alternatives.
3: Yeah, right. We need to like we need policy to like, let me ask
2: that. You know, what is the alternative to flying?
3: There isn't. Well, you know, a lot of flying could be um, a lot of flying could be done through high speed rail. Um, mm-hmm. That's one sort of local solution looking into the future i think we need to develop either electric planes or carbon neutral jet fuel and that's one of the ways that this carbon capture technology is actually being used is to produce fuel that could conceivably power something like a plane without producing any carbon footprint so that's possible i think in, i mean i say in the book if we if we save ourselves it will be technology that saves us mm-hmm. but we can't just assume that like by going forward however we do our innovation mm-hmm. that Inevitably, some technology will evolve that will solve the problem for us. We need to actually focus on it and prioritize that goal. Otherwise, we'll end up just in, you know.
2: Putting b- a dome over it. That, yeah. So that's <laughs> what they want to do, it, or move to New Zealand. Yeah. Although that's not the best place to move. You
3: right? know, the, the original biodome was <laughs> briefly run by Steve Bannon. He, like, inherited it. You in it's a weird episode in his life where he was, like, the um, executive in, in charge of the biodome. Wow. Yeah. He knows. <laughs> Wise man.
2: He knows. He knows what the evil he perpetrates, and he does it anyway. That's fascinating. What happened to his biodome? Oh, it fell Did it it get moldy? Yeah, Yeah, that's what I thought. (laughs) Anyway, David, thank you so much. This has been a really fascinating thing, and it's critically important as we move forward to think about these things, especially people in Silicon Valley who stop making your dating apps, for fuck's sake, and move on to something more important. Anyway, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. You can read The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. I recommend it. It's by David Wallace-Wells. Thank you for coming on the show, David. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, Great to talk to you. And thanks to you all for listening. You can also find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. David, where can people find you and the book online? Uh,
3: my Twitter is D. Wallace Wells.
2: Okay. And the book? Is there a special you know, Amazon
3: That's the best place. Is it like
2: www.o.com? <laughs> we're front, we're front. <laughs>
3: it, we don't have a website. Okay. We that's okay. Don't, don't worry about it.
2: Or it could be <laughs> w- Al Gore was right. Now that you're done with this, check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. Thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then.
1: HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series— HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots. So you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com.